The following is a Westminster Seminary, California morning devotion given by Dr. Stephen Ball. For more information about this message or about Westminster Seminary, California, visit us online, wscal.edu, or call 888-480-8474. Online, wscal.edu, or call 888-480-8474. Our Heavenly Father, our great God in heaven, we call upon you now to aid us in our meditation upon your word that we may do so for your glory. May the thoughts and meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. We'll be saying our text, Psalm 2, as you may know, the faculty is... uh, doing chapel on Thursdays through the Psalms, various Psalms we get to pick. Uh, I got to pick this one. And I picked it for a number of reasons. Uh, One of the reasons is because of the times we live in, which will come out. And the other time is because of the New Testament references to this. I think you could have guessed at that. But I'd like to spend a little time with the psalm itself and simply make some observations, hopefully, that will be useful for you, and then look at some passages in the New Testament briefly. So when you look at this psalm, it's uh, very interesting, isn't it, how it opens with uh, the, the voices. And one of the interesting things about the voices here is you're not always sure who's speaking as narrator. Uh, so... The psalmist, you would assume, is speaking at the opening here, but it might be a little ambiguous, particularly because of how the psalm ends. But we'll just call this the narrator at this point. The narrator opens by asking the question, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? Then the narrator gives us the uh, words of the nations, the kings of the earth, and their words are, this is the only words they're given, the words in verse 3, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. And that's all they say. Uh, and this is notable. When you're, when you're looking at this sort of thing, you want to see how much speech people are given to show their importance and also the outcome. Then we have uh, the Lord speaking in verses 4 through 6. And then in verse 7, we're not really sure who's speaking here, except it's obviously the Messiah. And is this the same as a narrator, is the question I have for you. Is this, the, is this psalm really being sung to us by the Messiah? It certainly is sung to us by David, composed by David, the type of the Messiah. But do we have our Savior's voice through his... Um, ancestor under the inspiration of the Spirit. And so you have these uh, statements by different personages. So this uh, narrator, psalmist, Messiah, picks up in verse 7. and says, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, and then he quotes the Lord to him. So we're being given an insight into the Lord's uh, decretal communication to him. And then in verse 10, the psalmist picks back up, or the Messiah continues. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise and be warned. So the Messiah 
who has been given this authority now directs his voice to the nations. So I think that's an intriguing possibility that we have really a messianic voice throughout this psalm, but particularly at the end. Even with this uh, third-person reference, kiss the son, lest he be angry with you. You all know that our Savior, when he speaks in the Gospels, is always speaking in the third person about himself because he's speaking about him and his office. But I'd like to uh, focus our attention on a couple of things now in the content of this psalm. It's interesting, isn't it, how it opens up with this question, a rhetorical question, obviously. Why do the nations rage? And the only thing that informs a question like that is if it's senseless. Why do the nations rage? This is incredibly stupid. Why do peoples plot in vain? Well, that's the first answer to why this is uh, such an incredible question. Why in the world would they do this? And the answer is, it's in vain. It is in vain that they're doing this. This is vanity. Now you get to something like Ecclesiastes. This is the ultimate in vanity for them to do this. But I think there's more to it when you read toward the end of the psalm and you start seeing um, elements that make it even particularly vain. Let me point out to you, and and by the way, this is in Calvin's commentary. It's just got some pretty interesting, uh, memorable uh, lines in his statement on this. Notice in verse 2, it's the kings of the earth. These are the earthlings speaking, people who are on earth. And then when the Lord speaks to them, part of what makes it vain, he who sits in the heavens laughs. So, you know, they're on earth, but he's seated, seated. And when you're seated, you're on a throne. This is seated in victory and power, exerting his a royal sovereign rule from a throne room, and he exerts his rule by laughing at them from heaven. And Calvin's statement is, you know, the, the kings of the earth are so many uh, cockroaches down there, basically. I don't think that's the word he uses, but that's the idea. Is, you know, they, there's so many bugs racing around on the earth, and the Lord in heaven looks down and just says, Listen here. But you see, that's part of why it's in vain. That's why this question comes up. Why in the world would they do this? Don't they know that they are rebelling against the Lord who's seated in heaven? You can't go there and challenge his rule. His rule is from everlasting to everlasting, and he is not, there's no coup possible with him. And they don't have the power or access to him because they're kings of the earth, not in heaven. And so here is his response. He holds them in derision. That's part of what makes it vain as well. He's not challenged by their rebellion. It, it really has no effect upon his rule. He, he, hold, he scorns their rebellion as so much ineffective, useless, talk and activity that creates an uproar in their eyes that is so powerful, but in his eyes, it's just meaningless. Again, it's like bugs 
wandering around in the dirt that can't do anything against him. But there's more to it, and, and something that, that's quite striking here. Verse 10, when this voice speaks to the kings, it's very interesting what is said to the kings. Be wise. O kings, be wise. This is actually a withholding of wrath. This is a voice telling them, you have time now to calm down and listen. Listen to wisdom here. And then it even gets more uh, striking in verse 11. Serve the Lord with fear. But this is not the kind of terror of subjects in a dungeon who are under the foot of a tyrant because of the next line, and rejoice with trembling. What makes it vain is the Lord offers them joy. In wisdom, they could come before the Lord in fear and trembling and experience joy of his sovereignty. The Lord's yoke is a joyful yoke. You just think about Matthew 11. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. I'm here to offer you freedom. My yoke, my chains are freedom for you. And that's what the Lord is saying to them. Uh, and then, what? and so it's, it's in vain because he's offering them good things. They're rebelling against the only good thing they have before them. The chains of God are their freedom, and they rebel against it. And so it's, it's senseless. Why are they doing this? And then kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. That's why it's in vain. He, once his wrath is kindled, you can't do anything to withhold it. You can't stop his wrath from being poured out. You think of Revelation 6, as one often does, when the nations, including in that lie, in that passage, the kings of the earth, sound familiar, right? Who call upon the mountains and the rocks to hide them from the wrath of God, the one seated on the throne, the one seated, and the lamb, who is the Messiah, because their wrath has been kindled and being poured out. So may the mountains hide us from his wrath. This is wrath of the most extreme sort. So it's in vain because once his wrath is kindled, there's no hiding. The mountains cannot hide you. There is, of course, another psalm that talks about that. You go down to the depths of the sea. You will not be hidden from him. There's no place to hide. That's part of why it's in vain. But then again, at the very end of the psalm, again, you have this positive note. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. That's what the kings of the earth and the peoples of the earth have before them, being held out before them by this royal sovereign rule, blessedness and refuge. You don't have to call on the mountains to hide you from his wrath. Call on God to hide you from his wrath. Call on the Son of God to hide you from his wrath. Call on the Messiah because... This decree of the Lord is the same decree 
The decree that appoints the Son here to rule over all the world is the same decree that sent our Lord Jesus Christ down to rescue us and be our refuge from divine wrath. That is what's being offered to the kings of the earth and the peoples who are assembling in vain and shouting against the Lord and his anointed. That's what they are refusing to accept is joyful blessedness and refuge uh, from divine wrath. Well, I promised New Testament references, so we're going to have to do that because our time is flying uh, on the fly a little bit, but I will make reference to some passages that are worth your attention if you get a chance to look at them. What It is interesting how often in different places this a psalm is referenced in the New Testament as fulfilled in Christ. Uh, one, of the, one of the first ones, I, I would say, that's quite explicit is in Acts 4, when the uh, government governors of Israel call the apostles before them and tell them not to uh, proclaim the name of Jesus anymore. And they go back from prison and tell the church, and they quote this psalm directly. They actually make reference to David and quote it. You know, the nations assembling and the peoples uh, assembling against the Lord and his anointed. And they say, that's what's happening here. This, this psalm is being fulfilled here in our experience. But one of the more striking things there is reference to Herod and Pontius Pilate, so the king and the rulers. And then you have, uh, and then they say, and the Gentiles, but then they say the peoples, plural, of Israel. It's striking, isn't it? You don't normally have peoples, plural, of Israel. You have people, singular, of Israel. Here, it's because of the psalm, and the peoples, plural, Gather in vain. So now Israel, I will set, I will set my Messiah on Zion, my holy here. Here they are in Zion, in Jerusalem, being threatened by the peoples. And it turns out the peoples are Israelites. So now they've allied with the Gentiles. They're part of this group who are rebelling against the Lord and his anointed. That's how that, that psalm is interpreted in their experience. It is quite striking. Another reference is Revelation 19, where, where our Lord appears at the end of days. And he appears, and there's clear reference to this uh, striking the nations with the rod of iron. That is why he appears on this white horse in wrath. It actually piles up references that are, have already been given to us in the book of Revelation, his various names, his attributes, his features of his appearance. They're all, you know, piled up from the rest of earlier parts of Revelation. They're all piled up here in Revelation 19.11 and following. But it includes, uh, he has a sharp sword to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron and tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God. So here's, here's his fury and wrath being, has been kindled. So this is, this is the last day. Uh, so obviously the day of wrath has been suspended until the end of this age. 
Now is not the time of wrath. You could find places where Jesus tells us that. I didn't come to judge the world, but I came to save the world. And so I'm not going to exercise that judgment yet. However, there are times when his wrath is kindled. Um, And then we have the other place in Revelation. This is in Revelation 2 in the message to the church of Thyatira. Again, very striking because here his wrath is kindled against those who have apostatized in this congregation. Um, And he tells them, I am coming against you. Uh, The time for your repentance is over with, and now I will strike her children. So same kind of language you find in that psalm. So that they have allied themselves with the nations and the kings of the earth. And the Lord says, I've given up on you. But... This is a very long message. The message to the Thyatirans is twice as long as the other six messages in Revelation 2 and 3. Because then he says to those who have not allied themselves with apostates, and he says, but I know about you, my dears. I'm not going to place any burdens on you. So you hold fast to what you have. And then in Revelation 2:26, the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces. This is a quote from Psalm 2. Even as I myself have received authority from my father. This is, you know, I will tell the decree of the Lord. And I will give him the morning star, and he who has ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So he's, he's included you in his rule. He's given you hope that even though you may feel ground under the feet of those in rebellion against the Lord, you have a promise from our Savior, who himself has authority from the king of the universe of sovereign rule. I, remember, we're talking about our Savior in his incarnate office as Messiah. We have, a, we have a man ruling over all creation now, the risen Lord Jesus Christ, our brother. And he says, I will share out that rule with you. You hold fast until the time when that will be fulfilled. But it's yours. I, I hold this out for you. Brothers and sisters, we live in a time when the news, rightly for us, is filled with report of persecution of our brothers and sisters in various parts of the world where we're deeply saddened by that. Maybe we're afraid because of that. I would would ask you to read Psalm 2 in light of that, that the Lord is not threatened by their, their wicked rumblings. They are chained. Let us break their bonds. Let us tear apart their chains, and they won't be able to do it. You should actually look upon the church's persecutors with pity. And you should look upon them as people that you can pray for. As our Savior says, pray for those who persecute you. Because his wrath might be kindled against them. And he scoffs at them. He is not threatened by them. And neither is your place in his kingdom. It has been won for you by a victorious Messiah. And so you pray for those persecutors. You pray that they will come to their senses 
They will be wise and seek out the Lord and not try to tear apart his bonds of love. Because those bonds of love for you can't be broken. He looks upon you as his treasured possession. And that's whom they are harming. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? You're the, you're the beloved of Christ. And so if you are privileged to suffer for his name's sake, pray for your persecutors. Do not fear for your life because it is held for you in heaven, in resurrection glory. You have an inheritance that cannot be taken away from you by anybody on earth, no matter how they rage against you. Let's pray. Easy things to say, O Lord, harder things to live out. And so we look to you. Blessed are all those who look to you. Help us to be blessed all of our lives, holding fast to this precious word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Copyright 2020, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.